It's Thursday, August 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The nationwide moratorium on evictions lapsed just last Saturday, but only a few days later, the CDC stepped in and provided an extension for those that live in counties experiencing high or substantial community spread of the virus. This has led to a lot of confusion and worry among those at risk of being evicted. Abba Batarai, business reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the last-minute eviction ban extension. Next, Arizona is currently giving us a preview of how mask-wearing in schools will play out across the country. Arizona is one of at least seven states that have mandated that schools not require mask-wearing. Still, with surges in cases and guidance from the CDC, some Arizona school districts are defying the order and requiring masks for students and staff. Idly Kampa, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the continued fight over masks in school. Finally, last week we heard that Scarlett Johansson was suing Disney over breach of contract for releasing her latest Black Widow movie on the Disney Plus streaming service at the same time as its theatrical release. It's odd to see lawsuits like this with studios preferring to negotiate, but it's also another example of the current battle between actors and studios over profits made from streaming. Lucas Shaw, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Housing justice, when do we want it? Now! What do we want? Housing justice, when do we want it? Now! What do we want? Housing justice. When do we want it? Now! Joining us now is Abba Batarai, business reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Abba. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the eviction moratorium that we're seeing out there. So, eviction moratorium lapsed this past weekend. Congress needs to act to extend that. But what happened was that there was a last-minute extension done by the CDC. So basically, in areas that are experiencing high or substantial community spread of COVID right now, they say, you know, you can't do uh, the evictions on on people there. So there's a ban set there. But what's happened after that is just a big old confusing set of circumstances. People don't know if they're in those sections. There's nearby cities that might not be in those high substantial areas. So evictions are happening there. So it's kind of creating another little mess there. Abba, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing out there? And so that's absolutely right. We're seeing confusion upon confusion upon even more uncertainties for so many families, for millions of renters who are sort of been on the cusp of eviction. As you said, the moratorium lapsed on Saturday, and that set off a domino effect of property managers and landlords who sort of moved quickly to evict people as quickly as they could. And we've heard from a number of sheriff's departments around the country that those evictions began Monday. And we spoke to people who were evicted Monday and yesterday before the CDC stepped in and announced this new extension. But like you said, it's very confusing. It does cover most of the country, about 80% of the country's population. But figuring out exactly which counties are included and which aren't sort of sent a lot of people in a scramble last night. I've been speaking with a number of people who were facing eviction and were sort of just kind of waiting on pins and needles, wondering when that knock was going to come on the door, when they were going to actually have to leave. And then this introduced a new layer of doubt and uncertainty. And, and even the ones who know that they're spared for now until August 3rd, they say they feel temporary relief, but they still know what's coming. And this is sort of delaying available for them. The ban will expire on October 3rd, this new one that was set by the CDC. So we'll see what happens there. But for a number of how many people have fallen behind, I think uh, according to Moody's data that we got, more than 6 million renters have fallen behind on rent. So that's a lot of people that you know, might be falling into this area of being in danger of being evicted. 
Absolutely. And it's also important to point out that evictions have still been happening during the moratorium. There's been a federal ban, but, you know, there have been loopholes that landlords have been able to use. Maybe they're not getting somebody for non-payment of rent, but they're finding other reasons to evict them. Or they're finding things that aren't necessarily COVID related and aren't included in the guidelines. Even in cases where people were being evicted for rent reasons, very COVID related, it was up to the renters to go to the judge and explain that they shouldn't be evicted at this time because of the federal moratorium. And so there were just many layers of confusion. And we did speak to a number of people who had been evicted in the past year, despite the moratorium. Is there relief for landlords at all? Can they apply for some type of relief or, or is all this just affecting renters, basically? There are a number of different programs and Congress itself has set aside $50 billion to help renters sort of pay back their landlords. So there are multiple avenues that landlords can use. Um, And a lot of renters said that their landlords had been working with them to find federal and local programs they could use to get this money. But that money has been very slow to filter down to people. My colleagues recently found that only 12% of the $25 billion set aside by Congress in December has been dispersed. And so 88% of that billions of dollars is just still sitting there and could be used to pay back a lot of this rent that people are struggling with. Stressful time for these people who, you know, might have gotten this reprieve right now, but they know it's just a matter of time. You know, if they haven't been able to catch back up on some of those payments, they're not going to be able to do it by October. It seems like some of these people are owing a few thousand dollars in back rent. Share a couple of the stories, if you could, of people that you spoke to and, and their fears with all this. You know, almost everybody that I talked to, I talked to maybe a dozen people, almost everybody said that things were going relatively well for them. You know, they were doing okay during most of the pandemic, but it was one thing that sort of set them behind. One person said it was a $500 electricity bill this summer that meant that they couldn't pay their rent and things just kind of spiraled from there. Another said he and his mother-in-law got sick with COVID in July and couldn't go to work anymore. And that's what set them off. One woman I talked to, an 80-year-old woman in Mesa, Arizona, said she is on the verge of being evicted. She's already gotten her eviction notice because she didn't receive her Social Security check in July. For some reason, it just didn't drop in her bank account. And that meant she couldn't pay her rent. So now she's put all of her stuff in a storage unit and is trying to find someplace else to live. And that kind of illustrates, you know, some of the struggle here, too, is that Even people who haven't physically been evicted yet have been living with this looming over them and they've been making plans. Many of them say they've already started to look for apartments and it's really difficult. Rents have shot up in the last year and there's sort of this huge surge of people who are looking for affordable places right now. So it's very difficult to find anything. And this woman that I just mentioned, she has her stuff in storage. And so she doesn't really care that there's an eviction moratorium. She knows she still needs to get out of there as quickly as she can. And so that's the reality for a lot of people on the ground. Abba Batarai, business reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We notice a lot of kids coming to the hospital with COVID-related pneumonia, respiratory distress, even requiring intensive care and uh, you know, mechanical ventilation. Joining us now is Idly Kampa, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Idly. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about going back to school. It still seems like it's quite a mess. Obviously, we're seeing the Delta variant rage throughout the United States. Schools are starting to go back in Arizona. They've already started. So it's kind of giving a peek into how mask wearing, all this stuff will be playing out. Arizona, for its part, passed a law basically saying that 
you can't require people's students to wear masks at schools. But there is uh, the Phoenix Union High School District is basically doing that. They're going against that. They're saying we want all the kids, everybody to be wearing masks. So that's what's going on. So it's setting off this fight again. Idly, tell us what's going on there. Schools in Arizona are some of the first in the country to go back to school. And Arizona is also one of several states that are banning schools from requiring masks. So we're getting a first look in schools in Arizona, seeing how this plays out. And Phoenix Union High School District, as well as Phoenix Elementary School District, are saying that they feel the need to have a requirement in schools because of the number of cases that they have in those areas. So they're saying, you know what, we're going to decide to go through with this anyway. The consequences of that are still unknown, but they're going forward with it. I said at the beginning, this is kind of an early indication of how this might play out across the country. There's about seven other states that have outlawed the use of masks in schools already. So this is going to be a familiar story going forward as we really get into the school season. Governor Doug Ducey, you know, has basically said that whatever they're doing there has no teeth. It's unenforceable. I mean, what does he plan on doing? I mean, is he going to are they suing? I'd be hard pressed to see police out there enforcing the mask wearing, saying take off the mask. Mm -hmm. You know what? How does that how is it going to be playing out for him at least? Consequences have not been determined uh, yet, or they haven't been released. They haven't said that they would sue themselves. There was a teacher who filed a lawsuit on Monday against the school district, the Phoenix Union High School District, and he was a teacher in that district. And we're going to see how that plays out. It's still pretty soon to find out. The superintendent there, you know, is the one that made the decision to do this. For Arizona, for their vaccination rate, is pretty low. There, It's only about... 52% of Arizonans have received at least one dose of the vaccine. I mean, so they got a lot of work to do. But where this county, where this high school district wants them to wear masks, they're in one of those high transmission areas where the CDC recommended that they wear masks. So that's why the superintendent there made that decision. Yes, there is about 32 zip codes that that high school district covers. And the superintendent said that all of those zip codes are either insubstantial or high, which is what the CDC considers the two riskiest categories. So the district said that they decided to follow through with the CDC guidelines and expert advice instead of the law in this case. Yeah, Phoenix Union, that school district has about 30,000 students. So that's a lot of kids out there. So this is kind of the political part that's playing out, the public health part that's playing out. Who cares what the adults say, right? What do the students say? What do the families say that are having to go through this? We went out on Monday to visit Bioscience High School, one of the schools in the Phoenix Union High School District, and we talked to students around there. We talked to parents that were dropping their kids off. Some of them hadn't been back to school in person since March of 2020. And every single person that we talked to was in favor of the district putting this requirement in place so far. The superintendent did say that there was a group of parents that voiced their opposition, but he said that the vast majority of families have applauded this decision so far. For them right now, there's no option of remote learning or or virtual schooling, any of that, right? It's all full in-person classes. In this district, everything is in-person. However, they opened up a virtual school. So if students 
decided that they want to go through with a remote option still, they would have to enroll in a separate school. They can't keep attending the school that they had been attending previously, which has put parents in a situation where they're kind of going back and forth between, well, do I want them to stay in a school that they maybe enjoy and like and want to stay in, but in person, or should we go to a virtual school? So I talked to uh, two parents who said that in this case, they prefer to go to bioscience and be in person. So they they felt safer going to that in-person school, having that mask requirement. Idly Kampa, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. She thought she was guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release and, you know, wants to be compensated for what she feels she's not paid because her payday is not just the salary for doing the movie. She gets paid bonuses based on how well the movie does at the box office. Joining us now is Lucas Shaw, reporter at Bloomberg News and author of the Screen Time newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Thanks for having me. We had an interesting story last week where we saw Scarlett Johansson, the star of uh, the new Marvel movie Black Widow, sue Disney. Apparently, her contract had something to do with, you know, obviously making money for the movie, but then also making money on box office revenue. Well, Disney released the movie on Disney Plus at the exact same time that it came out in movie theaters. So she feels she might deserve a bigger cut. And it kind of started this tit for tat between her and Disney. And, uh, you know, a lot of questions have come out through all of this. So, Lucas, walk us through some of this. What are we seeing with this story? What it boils down to is, you know, Scarlett Johansson had signed on to do this Marvel movie, Black Widow, and made it before the pandemic. And there was an assumption on her part and previously an assumption on Disney's part that it would be released the way that movies have been released for a very long time. It goes in theaters for a few months and then it's available for maybe rental at home or DVD and then eventually it goes to a streaming service. But we've seen over the past several years sort of a shift in how this works with more and more companies either releasing movies on streaming services instead or at the same time or just a little bit after it's in the theater. And the pandemic kind of accelerated this shift where you had a lot of studios that couldn't release their movies in theaters or didn't want to because theaters were closed or limited capacity and you couldn't make a lot of money that way. And so Disney elected to release Black Widow in theaters and at home at the same time thinking that it would be able to make more money because there would be certain people who might not want to go to the theater and they would pay for it on Disney+. Plus. Unlike on a, a Netflix or an Amazon, this was a movie where you couldn't just have Disney+, Plus; you had to pay $30, what's called premiere access for Disney+. Plus. Right. And the issue is that Scarlett Johansson felt that this move violated her contract because she had been guaranteed this theatrical release, or at least had been, she thought she was guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release. And, you know, wants to be compensated for what she feels she's not paid because her payday is not just the salary for doing the movie. She gets paid bonuses based on how well the movie does at the box office and the movie being released during a pandemic, the movie being released at home at the same time may shrink those sales at the box office. And so she's claiming that Disney owes her a bunch of extra money. Disney doesn't feel it does. Right. This all kind of is in line with how this discussion, uh, as you kind of been saying, what happens, how much actors should get paid when these releases are simultaneous in the theaters and on their streaming services? And who does this benefit? Because for Disney, they're obviously looking for more subscribers to their Disney Plus service. They're not going to share that money, but are they sharing some of that revenue from that $30 premiere access? My understanding is that Disney does share money from the premiere access 
with the talent. I think that the tricky part here is you look at some of the other players and, and when Warner Brothers decided to release its movies on HBO Max at the same time that it released it in theaters, it paid a lot of the talent with profit participants an extra amount of money, right? Because it knew, you know, we're trying to release this movie in a pandemic. It's not going to make as much money. The best way to release it is also to put it on our streaming service, which we're trying to boost anyways. You can't share in the upside from the streaming service, so we'll pay you some other money so that you feel whole. Netflix, when it tends to buy or go after a movie, it will often buy out what's known as back-end, that profit participation, ahead of time. There's sort of this model where if you're going to release something in a way where your back-end is not the same, you pay people extra up front. And Disney didn't do that. Now, their explanation, I think, would be that unlike these other players, they do have that premier access here, and they are, I believe, sharing that money, although there's been some disagreement in the press about it. But this could have all probably been resolved had Disney just paid Scarlett Johansson a little extra money up front. Right. You made mention in the article that, you know, some of these pay disputes, they happen all the time, but we usually don't really see them happening, especially with stars this big and studios this big like that. They prefer to negotiate. And that was kind of one of the other things, too. They they didn't really go that route. It's funny. We've gone through cycles of this fight several times in the last six months. There was the Warner Brothers one that I mentioned. There was also somewhat of a, a dispute with regard to A Quiet Place 2, where the director and co-star of that movie, John Krasinski, his wife and star Emily Blunt, were nervous because that movie had a shortened window in theaters and would then go to the streaming service Paramount+. Plus. That movie did so well at the box office, that fight went away. But we've had a lot of this bubbling up because of the pandemic, because of the way that movies being released, because the way movies being released is changing. What is so strange here is that it ended in a lawsuit where you have, uh, you know, high powered litigators on both sides. You have the head of CAA, one of the biggest talent agencies in town, publicly criticizing Disney. I don't think any of this would have happened if there just been some negotiation a long time ago or in the months leading up to this decision. But I think one of the tricky parts is Disney is deciding on its movies on a title by title basis, whereas Someone like Warner Brothers just did it all at once. And that means that on an individual title, you might have someone who's, who's upset. And also, Disney's a big, powerful company. They might think that they can play by different rules than everyone else. Do we think that we're going to see a lot more of these types of lawsuits? I, I just remember seeing, you know, in the past week, the rumors that Emma Stone might be considering a lawsuit like this for her Cruella release, which, you know, released in the movie theaters and on Disney Plus at the same time. It's possible The thing is, is that in the new deals, right, in the the deals for future movies that are going to be on streaming, most of this will get settled ahead of time. When Netflix makes a deal for a new movie, when Warner Brothers wants to make a movie for HBO Max, they're deciding on, on the participation ahead of time. What happened here was that the pandemic forced a change in how a lot of these movies are being released. Now, it's possible that, you know, if the pandemic lasts for, you know, another year plus, And we have more and more of these movies being released in a different way than what the contracts initially proposed that could lead to some lawsuits. Or if you have other people who look at the Scarlett Johansson situation and believe, hey, you did the right thing. I'm going to join the party. It's possible. But Scarlett Johansson was in a particularly good situation to engage in a legal fight because not only is she a, you know, a powerful movie star with, uh, with a lot of connections, but she was at the end of her deal with Marvel. And so there was a lot less risk in going into some big legal dispute with, with Disney and Marvel than had she been, say, five pictures into a nine-picture deal. Right. Lucas Shaw, reporter at Bloomberg News and author of the Screen Time Newsletter. Thank you very much for joining us. 
pensarlo. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.